Welcome to Tales of Panem, a Hunger Games podcast. My name is Claire, my pronouns are she, her, and I'm glad to have you all joining me this week. Make sure to check out my social media, which is at Tales of Panem on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok for updates, episode information, and more. This week's episode will cover chapters 16 through 20 of The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes, and as usual, I'm going to start off with a brief recap of the chapters. Once again, brief. I use that word very lightly. (laughs) As Coriolanus and Sejanus are escaping the arena, they are attacked by some of the tributes and Coriolanus kills Bobbin. He is then taken to the Citadel where Dr. Gall treats his wounds and tells him that being in the arena was a learning experience for him. The next day, Strabo, Plinth, and Sejanus announce that the mentor to the winning tribute will receive a full ride to the university. In the arena, Jessup has contracted rabies and Elizastrata and Coriolanus both send water to help Lucy Gray escape him before he dies. Reaper pulls down the flag of Panem from the stands and gives part of it to Lamina to protect her from the sun. Coral, Mizzen, and Tanner in their newly formed alliance attack Lamina, killing her. Coral and Mizzen then turn on Tanner, killing him as well. When Coriolanus goes to get his stitches checked, he sees a tank of Dr. Gall's snakes being transported and assumes they're going into the arena. He drops the handkerchief with Lucy Gray's scent on it into the tank, hoping that will stop the snakes from attacking her. On his way home, he visits the plinths, hoping Strabo will offer him money in exchange for his silence, but he does not. The next day, Wolvie dies of what Snow thinks might be Lucy Gray's poison. Dr. Gall announces that Gaius Breen has died from the injuries he sustained in the bombing, and that her snakes are being released in the arena as a message to the rebels. The snakes quickly kill Cirque and Coral, but they do not attack Lucy Gray, who starts singing to them, leading the audience to believe it is her song that saves her. Tessie uses the reprogrammed droids to kill Mizzen and is then killed by Treach. Treach then attacks Lucy Gray, but she kills him by dropping a snake down his shirt. Lucy Gray finally manages to outrun Reaper, who tries to drink from a puddle and then dies, making Lucy Gray the victor of the 10th Hunger Games. Coriolanus is called to the lab, where Highbottom is waiting for him with a stained Academy napkin, his mother's compact, and the handkerchief. After their meeting, Coriolanus is sent to become a peacekeeper. We have made it to the end of the games, and also the end of part two. Um, And as usual, the recaps are getting longer and longer, and I fear they might get even longer in the next two parts. Also, though, the thing with this section is that I wanted to cover, I wanted to make sure I mentioned all the deaths that happen in the arena. And that leads me to my first point um, that I wanted to touch on today, which is that something that is unique to this book is that every single tribute has a name. In Catching Fire and in The Hunger Games, not every tribute is named. Some of them like never even really get mentioned. Even in Catching Fire, we know more of them because they are the former victors, but there are still some that we don't really know. And so this is a very unique situation. And and it's not like all of them get like brought up by name throughout the book. And there's some of them where Snow never really even learns their names, but we have a list of everyone and we see it multiple times throughout the book. We have a list of all of them and all of their names, um, even if Snow doesn't remember them. And so when we get into like the individual deaths, each one is significant. And also we are, we are witnessing every single one as opposed to like in, in like the first Hunger Games, for example, we don't really know how a lot of the deaths happen because Katniss is not there firsthand witnessing it. Um, And so when we have like, in this case, 
we're all getting this all from Snow, who is like sitting there watching the games happen. So we see every death that happens in the arena. And also there's more focus pulled to them because like not that many tributes actually made it into the arena. A lot of them died beforehand. Some of them died in the bombing. Some of them were killed by peacekeepers. Like not everyone made it into the arena. So there's already a smaller tribute pool. So each death has a lot more significance. But I also think that like something that's very interesting to me is that like everything in the text of this book almost doesn't want you to like humanize the tributes if that makes any sense like snow is constantly trying to dehumanize them and so when we're reading everything like basically from his point of view or like not directly because it's in third person but it is very much skewed to his viewpoint it's always like oh we're not supposed to be viewing these people as humans or at the very least they're supposed to be a like lesser class of humans but then with contrast to that you have every single one of them a name and you see how each one of them dies and it is successful in like humanizing them in ways that a lot of the tributes weren't humanized in the earlier books like in the hunger games like yes you're obviously supposed to like feel for each of these children and that they're all victims but like some of them we don't even know anything about them we don't know their names we don't like they're literally not even mentioned and so it's hard to like care about them in any significant way when we literally don't even know what their name is whereas in this book it's like we do know every single person's name so even if they're not like a huge major character like a lot of these tributes are very minor characters you still are like no they're people and they're children and like it's horrifying that they are dying in this way and I think that's a really interesting like way to play that and I think it it's really successful in in what I think Suzanne Collins was trying to accomplish with that but anyway Snow is escaping from the arena with Sejanus and he kills Bobbin in self-defense. I say that like that because the, the, the situation is that like he, Bobbin attacks him, he hits Bobbin with the, the pole and then Bobbin kind of like falls to the ground and then he starts like hitting him over and over and over again. So it's like super violent and it's like one, he was probably already knocked out pretty well from the first hit. And also, like, it, the, the, like, almost animalistic way that he kills him is so fascinating to me. Because, like, they've spent this whole time being like, oh, the people from the districts are animals. The tributes are animals. Like, look how they're killing each other. And the second Snow is in the arena, he does the exact same thing, if not worse. And then he's all like, oh, but, like, it was self-defense. Like, I had to. Is every tribute in the arena not acting in self-defense if they're killing other tributes? Because, like, by definition, in order for them to live, the others have to die. And so it's just so, like, how he manages to maintain this, like, superiority to the people of the districts. When Dr. Gall, after they meet after that, is, like, I was literally trying to show you that, like, put anyone in that arena and they turn into a killer. And I also think there's something very interesting in, like, because obviously... Dr. Gall is like our main antagonist in this book and Snow is obviously the main character but I would argue that the main like protagonist in the sense that we're supposed to root for and care about them is Lucy Gray Baird and those two people could not be more in contrast to each other and it's also very interesting because like you have Dr. Gall on one side who is manipulating Snow and is trying to pull him to like her side like she wants him to fall into this like twisted evil that she has that like is the way that she lives and Lucy Gray is on the opposite side of that where she you know can see that he's kind of struggling between like you know I'm a capital I'm a capital boy like 
I believe in the capital. I, I believe in the Hunger Games, like all that kind of stuff. And she's trying to like pull him out of that and be like, can you please see that like what the capital is doing to the districts is wrong. And so you have those two people on both sides and like, you know, Dr. Gall is going to win, right? Because we know the kind of person that Snow is from like the later books. But also like there is a very real struggle there in that like Gall and Lucy Gray have completely opposite viewpoints of the world. Because Lucy Gray, and I think I talked about this either last week or the week before, like her whole thing is like seeing the good in everyone and believing that there is goodness. And then Dr. Gall's whole thing is the total opposite of that, of that like anyone can be evil, anyone can become a killer if you put them in that arena. And I loved, they really highlighted that in the trailer um, because they included Lucy Gray's line where she's like, I believe there's a natural goodness built into us all. And Gall is the like, see how quickly like the tributes become predators in that arena which I actually love that they gave her that line because it's originally um something that Snow thinks I can't remember if it's what he actually ends up writing in his paper if it's just part of his thought process during that scene but it is him originally but they let Gaul say that line in the film which I think is super smart because it's so in line with her way of thinking um and her saying it to Snow just helps with that like manipulation of him to be evil in the way that she wants him to be but yeah it, there's a really interesting like like sort of like pitting those two characters against each other in the fight for what kind of person is snow gonna turn out to be and that is like question at the end is like was there any reality in which he followed lucy gray and and was a good person like she wanted him to be or was he always destined to go dr gall's way and i I think it is very much up for debate, um, which is actually the entire point of this novel. Suzanne literally said that like the objective of this novel was to explore the the sort of question of like, are people born evil or like, and it is it an inevitability or can they be changed? Or is it just like, these people are bad and these are good and that's that. And And the answer is not a simple like, yes or no or black and white like it is a very nuanced thing um and I think this novel did a really good job of exploring that nuance because like obviously the Snow's like need to control everything was always going to be his his downfall it ends up he ends up using it like it is his strength but it is what causes him to be the horrible person and the horrible ruler that he ends up being um so in the eyes of any like sane, rational, good person, it is very much his downfall. But would he have ever been able to like combat that and live a life with Lucy Gray? I don't know. Um, but I do think that like it, there was, you know, that part of him was always going to be there. They, he was never going to be able to shake that. But the fact that he ends up using it for so much evil, could there have been a reality in which that didn't happen? Who knows? Um, but I just think it's a really interesting thing to think about, especially when you're seeing him kind of go back and forth of like, do I trust Lucy Gray? Do I not? Should I, should I take, you know, like, oh, I almost just, <laughs> I almost just spoiled something. Anyway, um, moving along <laughs> before I say something that I shouldn't say yet. Um, also when they're in the arena, Gall points this out to him too. And, and Snow kind of is thinking it at the same time is like, why are the tributes trying to kill him and Sejanus? Like, they know who they are. 
they know they're not tributes. So like, why should they care enough to go after them? And it's like, and Snow's like, I don't understand. Like, it's just because they're like monsters. And it's like, or consider it's because they're children and you're the ones who put them in there. And I'm not saying directly it was Snow and Zajanus who did it, but like they are involved. They are participating in this, in this system and like actively benefiting from the deaths of these tributes in the Hunger Games. So like they have every reason to want to go after them, especially when you again take in the fact that they are children and like so they're not they're not approaching this in the way that maybe like an adult would. Um, and I think that's what makes it such an interesting scenario and what makes it that much more horrible that they are so young and children have to think about things in a very different way than adults do because they don't have the like the same like life experience and just like general knowledge. Um, I'm not saying that is a bad thing. It's just like a fact, like they're young. Um, but also it's the fact that the tributes like band together in this. And we see this so much throughout the novel of like everyone in the capital wants to view them as like mindless savages so badly, but everything they're doing in the arena disproves that. Like the way that they like look out for each other. Like I, it's, it, I mean, it's right off the bat with the way that Lamina climbs up and, and, whispers to Marcus presumably asking him like do you want me to just kill you and like put you out of your misery basically and he says yes is what we infer that exchange was and everyone else takes it as like oh look Lamina like getting the first kill in like she's she's such a like fearless killer wow she could win this thing and like that's obviously not what was happening there um but the capital wants it to play into their view of the tribute so badly and like Reaper oh my god what a good character okay what an incredible character um and I could say a million things about him but I think the thing that's most important is that like you know he's like the big strong tribute that everyone's like oh he probably is gonna win just based on like sheer physical strength and and like that's like their like strategy especially like Colencia's strategy is to play up like how tough he is and that's what's gonna get him sponsors and then once they actually get in the arena and he's also the one that made that weird comment about like, I'm sorry, I have to kill you all to the other tributes, which you could take as like a really threatening, like, I can't wait to get in the arena and kill you guys. But it's more of a like, sorry that this is our situation and that like, in order for one of us to live, all the others have to die. And it's, it's horrible, but like, that's just how it is. And so, but they get in the arena and he has so many good moments in this book. My God, like when he... And this is, goes back to what I was saying about, like, the tributes helping each other instead of just, like, killing each other mindlessly, like, the capital wants them to do and thinks they will do. Is he, like, t like, him and Lamina basically make an exchange of, like, she gives him some of her food and he gives her a part of the flag to use as, like, protection against the sun. And, like, he gathers up all the bodies of the dead tributes and, like, covers them in some sort of show of, like, respect or care. And it's just, like, Oh my god, I'm obsessed with this character and I'm obsessed. I was so glad they put it in the trailer, actually. I'm obsessed with the moment where he tears down the flag because he does it, you know, when he first does it, it's to give Lamina something to protect her from the sun because she's getting like severely sunburnt from sitting out there all day. And that is going to be like a big problem for her if she survives long enough for it to be. Um, and it's just like, the fact that all the people in the Capitol who are watching her are like, oh, he tore down the Capitol flag to like 
sit, like help this other girl that's terrible like that's our flag like or like it's not the capital flag it's like the flag of Panam but, but you get my point um and that's like so horrible to them and I'm like when we talk about the real world parallels in the Hunger Games they're obviously there all the time and I'm talking like throughout the series to like the real world like political climate that we are living in but there are certain moments where it's just so obvious like the fact that the people in the capital are more appalled by this guy ripping up their flag than they have literally been sitting staring at the screen watching children murder each other or like die horrible deaths due to natural causes but the thing that really upsets them is their flag being torn up to protect this girl and to like cover the bodies and stuff it's not even like I mean I it's not even like he just tore it down just to be like ha take that capital like you know there's definitely an element of that 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 occurs naturally as a result of what he's doing but like that was not the intention either and so the fact that people are like so upset about this I'm like wow I've seen this one before in the real world actually with people who care like and I'm talking obviously specifically this happens in North America and like I'm talking specifically about America with people who are like I will turn a blind eye to like all the horrible like pain and suffering that is happening in the world but like I'll get worked up over someone like throwing a flag on the ground and I'm like do you not see like the problem here and I just Suzanne just being like yeah I'll call that out love her so much and it's one of those moments where you're just like oh this is terrible and then you're like people in the real world act like this though like not maybe not this specific situation but like the behavior is something that is very much seen in the real world today um which makes it even more jarring anyway reaper i'm obsessed with you um could talk about you for a full episode but we must move on um i do want to talk briefly about the rabies thing because i think it's very interesting um that like there was a big rabies outbreak because the capital like people in the capital have pets and that's not something that we really ever like in the district saw like people in district 12 don't like have pets because like they can barely afford to feed themselves so like how could they afford a pet but of course like when you're rich it's like a luxury to be able to have like a dog or a cat or whatever but as the war goes on people can't afford people are trying to afford like food and medicine for themselves they can't afford the vaccines that their pets need to protect against rabies so there's a huge outbreak of rabies in the capital which I think is just such an interesting like detail and it's so like it it displays how much thought goes into this series of that like a rabies outbreak because people can't afford to vaccinate their pets during a war is not necessarily the first thing you're going to think of when you're thinking of like the repercussions of a war but it is a very real thing especially when you're dealing with like the wealthy, the elite, the upper class who like can afford the luxury of having a pet, whereas people in the districts most likely can't. But when they're not able to afford it, the first thing that they have to cut back on is these vaccinations for their pets. So there's a big rabies outbreak and it's still an issue. Um, Sorry, I just started thinking about Reaper's death and how there's much to unpack there, but I think that gets brought up again later. So I will hold off on it. Um, Anyway, that's not really related to what I was talking about. I mean, it is, but not in waste that I want to talk about right now um but yeah so Jessup ends up getting rabies and then also like the fact that the people of the capital have like a knowledge of rabies because it was like all over like 
be careful, protect yourself against rabies, how to see the signs of rabies and the like hydrophobia thing um, of how like people with rabies can't, can no longer swallow. And so they like the sight of water like freaks them out basically. Um, and so, and also Liz Estrada helping him with that when you know it was so painful for her, but like she really wanted Lucy Gray to win if Jessup didn't. And she was the one who always pushed for that alliance between the two of them. And then like, when it came down to it and it was like he's attacking her because he he has rabies she was like i will use my supply of water to help her escape him because like if if he's not gonna win i want it to be her um liz estrada what a girl um anyway so yeah just the the detail of like the rabies outbreak happening was something that i was like i never would have thought of this but like it makes so much sense when you actually do think about it also, Lucy Gray kind of, like, comforting Jessup as he dies. Like, she kind of has to keep her distance because, like, you know, he's still kind of trying to attack her um, because he doesn't have, like, full control over his own mind and body at that point. But she still wants to, like, be there with him as he dies. Um, because, again, like, the tribute's looking out for each other. And it's not like they were, like, best friends before they came here. Like, they didn't even really know each other. Even now, like, they only know each other through this, like, small alliance they had. But it's still, like, you know, he's her district partner and, like, she wants to comfort him as he dies um because all these tributes like they're all kind of in it together and that is like why like the capital really tries to push the like career thing later on and stuff like that because like they need the dis the tributes to not look out for each other like that because it does not bode well for them because the one thing they're always trying to stop is like unity between the districts and when that is happening literally in the hunger games a situation designed to turn the districts against each other, it's going to be a problem for them. And so that becomes a big part of like what they're trying to solve going forward. Um, speaking of the games going forward, I have a few thoughts about some rules and like changes that happen with the games in the future that I think started here. Um, the first one being the idea to have a different arena each year because up to that point they've just been using like this stadium but then and Dr. Gall points it out is that like the bombing like allowed access to like the tunnels and like the beams and stuff that would never have been able to be used before and that made the games more interesting to the capital viewers and so that likely sparked the idea of like hey if we create a different arena every year it's going to allow for different scenarios and different situations so people won't lose interest as they would if we just put them in this like old stadium every single year like and so and obviously by the time we get around to like 74th and 75th games we have arenas that are like are being designed like years and years in advance and like the cat it's i always think about the fact that after the games instead of just destroying the arenas they turn them into like tourist attractions and the people of the capital can go like tour them and participate in like reenactments i am not making this up by the way this is in the first novel People participate in reenactments in the arenas. That is so messed up. Anyway, um, but yeah, so I think that's probably where that came from. Another one. So this is in the book. In the movie, it's a little slightly different. But in the book, the first book, basically the tributes are allowed like one token from their district to bring into the arena. And I remember Cinna being like, I barely got them to allow this pin, the Mockingjay pin, because it could potentially have been, like, viewed as some something that could be used as a weapon. Um, 
once again, I'm willing to bet the one token rule that has to be approved by like presumably the game makers probably started here because Lucy Gray not only managed Snow not only manages to sneak in food with her, but also like a literal compact full of rat poison that just got into the arena because like no one thought to check. So I'm guessing that that probably caused problems, especially because we know he gets caught. Because at the end, high bottom of uh, the end of the section, high bottom is like, "Hey, let's have a chat." And then five minutes later, he's like on his way to become a peacekeeper. <laughs> I love how they also don't cover that meeting. They're like, "That meeting lasted about five minutes, and now he's a peacekeeper." And, and it's like the end of that part too. So you're like, "Wait, <laughs> what's happening? Why is he becoming a peacekeeper?" Yeah, I remember being so confused and so like, I was actually really surprised because the games end like right here, right? And then I was like, there's still a whole nother part. What's going to happen? And then they're like, he's becoming a peacekeeper. And I was like, oh my God, you're you're kidding me, right? Like, that's crazy. Coriolana Snow becomes a peacekeeper. Like, anyway, Suzanne, your mind. Um, but yeah, so those are a few of the rules that I'm like, mm, or like changes in the future. Um, anyway, I talked about the flag already. I also want to talk. I don't think I've talked about this before, but if I have, I'm sorry. The like snow lands on top sort of mantra that Snow and Tigress are always like repeating. I think I think it's very interesting how this saying clearly means very different things to each of them. Based on like Tigress is a much better person than Snow is. Um because to her it always feels like when she says it's it's always like a like the snows will rise above whatever challenges they have to face. Like, it's like snow lands on top of, like, the struggles that they are facing. Like, in this chap- in this section specifically, it's, like, the tax on their apartment that they're probably not going to be able to pay. And, like, in the past, it's been, like, the food shortages and, like, not having enough to wear or eat or, like, the deaths of their families. Like, stuff like that. But for her, it's always sort of, like, an inspirational thing of, like, we're going to get through this, so we're going to come out on top. Whereas when Snow says it, it feels very much like I will rise above other people. And it's sort of like I will land on top in that I am better than everyone else. And that like goes to his whole like I'm going to be president someday thing. Like he is going to be on top. Um, which is obviously a much like more selfish view of it. And it's less like, oh, like we're the Snows. We're going to push through this. And more like I'm a Snow and it is my right to be in control and to be on top as it were um and it's just very interesting when you hear them both say it and you're like when he says it it just feels wrong and bad but when she says it it feels like motivational you know um so I just think that that's something very interesting we also have this interview with high bottom in this section where he's like where he's like talking about how the games are so different because of like the sponsorship and stuff like that and like the mentors and he says his line about like kind of feels like we're all in the arena in a way and he always will just like I think that what's so interesting about his character because he's like high like all the time like he's addicted to more playing um so the some of the stuff he says like only kind of makes sense like you kind of have to piece it together but I'll always say this stuff that on one hand you're like that's really true and then he'll just be like anyway and kind of like wander off and I'm like wait no come back like say more like when he's like to, I talked about this last week a bunch, so I'm not going to, like, go back to it, but I think about it all the time when he's, like, 
to assume anything else of physical, mental, or especially moral superiority to the districts would be foolish or something like that. And I was like, oh my God, like points are being made. And then they're like, anyway, moving along. And I was like, no, actually, like, let's expand on that. Like, say more about that. Um, Because he's clearly a very intelligent person. He just is like, can't work through the obvious issues that he is having regarding like why he is addicted to morphine. And I feel like, I think it's literally in the epilogue that we get the like real tea on him, like what his actual deal is. So we'll come back to that. God, I could do a full episode on just the epilogue of this book. It's literally crazy. Like I have never read anything before in my life that made me be like, oh my God, what more than the, the epilogue of this book? Um, It's just so good. I just, I already said Suzanne, you're a genius this week. I need to limit myself to one Suzanne, you're a genius a week because otherwise it'll be all I talk about but she really is guys like this book is just so good the people who didn't like it I just don't understand it like I I know it's like whatever it's not going to be for everyone there are obviously a lot of things that are very different from the original series maybe it's just not for you blah 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 but like the nerve of people to try to say that this book wasn't good I'm like please I beg you to reread because like it's so good Suzanne has literally never written anything bad though so that's just that. Anyway, we do also see an alliance, however brief, in this section because Coral, Mizzen, Coral and Mizzen, who are the two from District 4, team up with Tanner um, to, and they kill Lamina and then promptly betray Tanner and kill him. Um, but they do have this alliance briefly and it sort of has the same vibe as some of the like career alliances that we see later on where it's like we we'll all team up until the numbers get too low and then we'll turn on like the weakest one or like the odd one out, whatever, until there's only one of us left. Um, especially with Coral and Mizzen being from the same district, it's like, okay, well at this point we kind of just got to stick to our district partner and we can't really afford to have a third person in this alliance. Um, but it is very like reminiscent of what we know the career alliances to be like later on, um, which I think is very interesting. And it's definitely something that the capital would want to like reward and promote because it leads to more death and more like actual active, like seeking out and killing of other tributes. And we also, I see so much in this book, which is again, the thing of like, we're getting this all from Snow who very much wants us to not view the district tributes as humans. But then we see all these things that are doing that directly contradict that. They all use their district strengths so well. Like the the kids from District 3 that like reprogram the drones to kill Mizzen. I was like, what is going on right now? Like, and that's obviously their like technology, like district strengths. And there's a lot of other examples of it. And I we all know the various districts. So I don't feel the need to go like super, super into that. But I just think it's very interesting. And I love when they emphasize like each district has very valuable skills that are unique to their district. I love when they kind of touch back on that, which they do it a lot in the original books too. And I really appreciate it because it's important that we like see how smart the people of the districts are, even though they have different skill sets than like the people in the capital might think are valuable. We can see the value in the skills that they actually have that have like real world implications or like not implications, applications. I talk too much about Reaper already. I should move on from that. So I won't talk more about him unless I have extra time at the end. There is this moment in this, in this, or in this section that I think is so funny when Snow is like, 
after he puts the handkerchief in the the snake tank, he's like, this is it. From now on, I'm going to live honestly. I'm not going to cheat anymore. I'm going to live like by the book. And I'm like, you famously like poison people all the time to get where you want to be. But it's just so funny when he's like making this like promise to himself that you know he's going to go back on almost immediately. And it's just so funny. And I'm like, you're so dumb in like a I hate you way, not in like a no intelligence way because he is unfortunately very intelligent, which is why he is so successful despite how terrible of a person he is. But just this moment where he's like, that's it. Like no more rule breaking for me. I'm like, girl, (laughs) me when I literally lie about everything. And it's not even because he's like, maybe I shouldn't have done this. It's because he's like, I don't want to get in trouble. And I'm like, hmm, I know you don't, but it's almost like if you cared about other people, things might be different. We also get something interesting in this section, which is the very first time that mutts are used in the arena with Gaul, like sending her snakes in there. And she frames it as like sort of a message to the rebels of, because Gaius Breen, who was one of their classmates who was injured in the bombing of the arena, like dies. And so she kind of frames it as like, it's like the message to the rebels, like you're not going to get away with this, but you know, she would have done it anyway. That was just an excuse. She would have found another reason to do it. In fact, I, listen, I don't know if I fully believe this, but the thought has crossed my mind a few times when I like get to this section of like, would Dr. Gall be willing to because we know she, I mean, she's a doctor obviously. And she like, we have this scene in this section where she's, like, treating Snow's wounds, basically. And we know she has, like, influence over the hospital staff because of, like, what happened with Clemencia and stuff like that. Would she be willing to kill one of their classmates as an excuse to put those snakes in the arena? I'm not saying I believe that's what happened, but I'm also not ruling it out. Like, I absolutely believe she would be willing to do that, is the thing. Um... And also Snow's kind of like, oh, I knew he was, like, severely injured, but, like, I didn't think that he was actually dead. And she's like, no, no, he's dead. Which, like, he definitely is dead because, like, they announce it to everyone on TV. Like, there's no way they're, like, faking his death. But, like, hmm, could she have murdered him? I'm just, I'm just putting it out there. If anyone else has thoughts about this, because I go back and forth on it a lot, I would like to hear them. Um, Although I do tend to lean towards she did murder him just because it's, more interesting and makes her more terrible and like I think that she needs to be as terrible as possible because it's what makes her effective as a villain and she's so like calculating in the way that she's awful so you know just some food for thought I need to actually like see if there's evidence to support or contradict this because I always just kind of like think it and then I never really like look into it in fact I'm gonna open the book right now to the part where she tells Snow that he died Yeah, okay, when she tells Snow, well, first he's, like, overhearing them in the lab in their, like, arena and games, and that's what leads him to believe the snakes are going into the arena. But then, um, she's, like, she says, tell me, Mr. Snow, did you know Gaius Breen? And he's, like, did I? I do. I mean, we're classmates. I know he lost his leg in the arena. Is he? And then she says, he's dead. Complications from the bombing. And I'm, like, interesting, because, like, he lost a leg, And, like, obviously his injuries could have been severe enough for him to die from them. But, like, just, just, just thinking. And then she's, like, keep it to yourself until we make an official announcement. I'm only telling you now, so at least one of you will have something intelligent to say, blah, blah, blah. 
And then he says, that will be strange announcing it during the games, like a victory for the Rebels. And then she says, exactly, but rest assured there will be repercussions. In fact, it was your girl who gave me the idea, which is another thing, um, but, but a separate topic. So anyway, not to be out of my like convoluted theories again, but I'm just, I'm just thinking, I'm really talking myself into this. At first it was just like, just the thought. And now I'm like, maybe I've decided I will believe in this. Um, it's just that like he lost a leg in the bombing and that's all they knew, but no one was like, oh, he's like oh, on the verge of death. Anyway. And also Snow never went to visit him, presumably because he believed like his condition would improve and he'd see him again. Because Gaius was one of the people that he actually kind of liked in his class. Moving along. <laughs> um, but yeah, this is the first time that, that mutts are used in the arena. Um, and obviously that is very successful in terms of like getting people engaged. Like it causes a lot of drama and action and excitement, if you want to call it that. Um, and so it becomes a thing that they're like, hmm, we'll definitely be doing that in the future. Um, and obviously we know that that lasts for a very long time, <laughs> like literally until the end of the Hunger Games. Also, Clemencia like freaks out when the snakes appear on screen, which made me very sad because I love her and she experienced a lot of trauma and I feel bad for her. <laughs> anyway, um, I just need to say, I already kind of talked about the meeting he has with High Bottom and why I think it's funny. But it's even just the fact that he walks into the room and Highbottom's just sitting at the table with the three like items that incriminate him in like some kind of cheating in the games. And Snow is just like, oh no, the second he steps in the door. And you know, because at okay, at this point we know High we can tell Highbottom doesn't like Snow. We don't really know why. I know why. You will soon too, or you do if you've already read this book. Um but just the way that he like walks in and high bottom just sitting there and I'm like, you know he is enjoying this so much. Like you know, you know he's having such a good time being like, hmm, you're gonna have to become a peacekeeper. Like you just know it. You just know it. And like honestly, like me too. Like I think like I know that he was helping Lucy Gray win and I'm like, you know what? Good because like I wanted her to win because I love her and I wanted her to survive. But also like, you know, let him be humbled. Let him go have to be a peacekeeper for a sec. Like Anyway, I just think this scene is so funny. Um, also, another thing that gets introduced in this section is the plinth prize, which is the like full ride that the plinths are going to give to everyone's games. And straight when they're announcing it, Strayb was like, "This was all Sejanus's idea." And I was like, "Okay, me when I lie, like, especially when Sejanus is like, my dad's whole thing is like buying people off, and then he's like, we're going to give someone a bunch of money." Um, and also, like, why would Sejanus have come up with that idea? Maybe. The only, only thing I can think of is that he was hoping Snow would win it and that's why he came up with it. But it still kind of seems like a Strabo Plinth move, which is why I think it's even funnier when Snow goes to the Plinth's house, basically being like, hopefully Strabo will offer me money to like be quiet about what happened in the arena. And they have this like weird conversation where Strabo's like, hopefully you're more like your mom than your dad because your dad kind of sucked. And Snow's like, I hope I am. And he's like, are you? And they kind of go back and forth. And then Snow's like, when are you going to offer me the money? And then he's like, Anyway, good night. And so I was like, I literally just came here hoping that you would offer to bribe me and you didn't even offer me any money, um, which I think is hilarious. And it also is funny when he like thinks he's going to get something and he doesn't because he's so used to like manipulating people into getting what he wants. Um, and that's kind of like his whole deal later on. So it's funny to see him not get what he wants for once. Thanks for joining me this week on Tales of Panem.
Next week is the first week of the month, which means I'll be doing my monthly character study episode, and this one will be about Coriolanus Snow. If you have any specific questions or topics you'd like me to cover, you can DM them to me on any social media or send them to my email, which is talesofpanam at gmail.com. If you'd like to leave a review or rating of the podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, it would be very appreciated. Thanks again for listening, and I'll be back next week.